Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Welcome to another episode of the Green Left Podcast. Uh, today we're talking poverty and homelessness, and there's been a recent report from The Guardian that found that homeless people are dying at the average age of 44 compared to 77 years old for the general population. And The Guardian's reported that many of these deaths were directly connected to the trauma and desperation of homelessness and compounded by the vast waits for emergency and public housing. Meanwhile, waiting lists for public and social housing continue to grow. There's almost 60,000 people on the waiting list in New South Wales alone. Um, and successive state governments have greenlit plans to demolish public housing sites, including the Victorian Labor government pushing ahead with its plan to demolish 45, uh, sorry, 44 high-rise public housing estates, despite a big pushback from tenants and housing experts. So today I'm talking to Kristen O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre about the desperate need for investment in public housing and other solutions to counter worsening poverty. Kick it off with this Guardian report that's recently come out that found that um, homeless people are dying uh, at the average age of 44, which is pretty shocking, compared to 77 years old is the the general population um, Mm. average age of of death. Um, So I guess I just wanted to start with this kind of ask what this reveals about poverty in this country. I think that it is not shocking to a lot of people who have been campaigning for a long time to see the welfare system become truly supportive and an actual safety net. What we have been saying for a long time is that the system of supports and the so-called welfare system kills people and, of course, it kills people in the worst situations um, at a far greater rate, uh, you know, than anyone else. And so I think it is really significant um, to have been able to put a number on this, but it's also something that shouldn't come as a shock and to those it does come as a shock too, I think they haven't been paying attention. Yeah, 100%. Um, according to... ABS, there's more than 122,000 people who are currently experiencing homelessness in Australia. And, you know, we've seen rents and house prices skyrocketing over the past few years. Um, and there's been a, a, obviously a lot of discussion in, uh, about like what kind of solutions are there. But um, I guess just wanted to ask you again, kind of what are the kind of main solutions that the Anti-Poverty Centre is advocating for and uh, anti-poverty activists in general for ending homelessness in this country? I think that number, high as it is, doesn't tell the full story because there are so many people who are living in overcrowded homes and people who, when their next rent rise hits, are going to find themselves unable to find somewhere to live. But everybody tries to pretend these are wicked problems and they are not. Confecting solutions around homelessness services and so-called wraparound supports when there's a very straightforward um, set of actions that the government needs to take to make sure everyone's right to housing is upheld. And so the government obviously 
could tomorrow, if it wanted, fund enough public homes to ensure everyone who needs one has the option to live in public housing. And they just have absolutely no political will to do that. And there's a series of things, you know, people feel like that's either too ambitious or not realistic. But we actually have right now lots of homes that are either empty, they are people's second homes or holiday homes, or, of course, they're being used for short-stay rentals like Airbnb. The government does not have to build enough homes to house every person. It can buy homes. And we actually just saw the Queensland government announce this week that they have what they said is secured um, some disused aged care homes now, uh, retirement homes, sorry. Now, don't ask me why there are retirement villages sitting there empty. I couldn't tell you. But they have (laughs) understood that they can take a dwelling that has already been built and house people in it. They should be going far beyond uh, empty retirement villages and looking at houses that are either being used for short stay or there's some other reason why it's not going to displace someone to acquire a property. Um, So that's one of the solutions is simply buy houses to be used for public housing, not just build. Of course, we need to build too, but there are things that can be done far more quickly. Um, Secondly, there is a whole bunch of people who don't currently qualify for public housing or community housing and are in severe rental stress. And those people can be assisted um, by the government doing very obvious things like really strict rent control. I don't think a rent freeze at this point in time is appropriate because we have all been pushed so far that our rents and our rents have gone up so much for many of us that even though we're currently just keeping our head above water, the slightest financial um, hit for, you know, whether it's unexpected medical costs or some other crisis Mm. is going to throw us out of our homes. So we've been proposing that there should be rent rollbacks for people who have experienced really severe rent increases and that if the government needs to bail out um, greedy property investors to do that, then that's what they should do. And if the government is going to bail people out like that, that's just another scheme for acquiring um, homes. And of course, you could have a condition for those homes that even if someone doesn't qualify for public housing, they will not be displaced. And that is the situation in which the government acquires the home. There's a lot more I could be telling you about. Mm. There's heaps and heaps of mechanisms that the government could use to really significantly reduce rental stress, reduce public housing waiting lists, and get people who have no shelter or who are living insecurely or in unstable situations um, into into housing. Yeah, it sounds um, like it's a lot more simple than governments uh, claim that it is. You know, in the broad brushstrokes, build public housing and buy, you know, the housing that's not being used and put people in it. Uh, And I guess the other aspect is, um, something that the Anti-Poverty Centre works a lot with about is uh, raising the rate of welfare payments, which will also have a huge impact on helping people kind of stay afloat in the current kind of cost of living crisis and also just general uh, uh, general life. Um, just to change the kind of topic a little bit here uh, to these stage three tax cut changes. So um, Labor's uh, altered the original stage three tax cut proposal and it claims it's making it more fair um pretty much people who are on more kind of average incomes are getting more of a tax cut and people who are on the very super high incomes are getting less of a tax cut uh 
but they do very little to improve things for people who are on the lowest incomes or people who are on uh, income support. Um, so what's your take on this so-called stage three light? The government should spend $300 billion on public housing and increasing Centrelink payments and not on tax cuts. Yeah. Because every person living on a low income, whether they're employed or unemployed, would benefit more from that type of investment than <clears throat> having thousands of dollars go to the wealthiest people uh, on the continent. Again, it's really, there's an Occam's razor to most of these so-called, um, you know, complex uh, policy challenges. There are lots of people who may notice the tax cut, but frankly, is it going to make a difference to someone on $250,000 a year to get, you know, uh, an extra $4,000 a year? They're not really <laughs> going to notice it. It's just like, it's crazy, right? And if, yeah. if the kind of... Um, if that kind of figure was being given to people on the lowest incomes, of course it would make an enormous difference. But also if that kind of money was being invested in public homes and we could expand eligibility for public homes, it would have an even greater impact than just giving people an extra $4,500 a year. So, again, it's just it's a terrible waste of money. It's been really actually quite upsetting and quite disturbing to see the number of so-called progressives who've really welcomed this as a big win. Um, mm. It's just at, the, at any type of spending that is not going to the people who need it most when we're in such a crisis point makes no sense. <clears throat> and there are plenty of investments that could be made to benefit everyone. That includes things like investing in healthcare and education, which cost um, poor people most, like as in it's the most disproportionate cost on poor people. So these kinds of things could benefit everyone, even people on high incomes, and also make a really material difference to those on the lowest incomes. So there are just so many options for what you could do with $300 billion, which is the current estimated cost of this change over the next 10 years. And fundamentally, this is a regressive change. It mm. does still further flatten our tax system, and we already have one of um, the least progressive tax systems in the OECD. Um, we, when I was born, I looked at it the other day, the top tax rate here was about 60 cents in the dollar. Mm. We've now got it down to something like 40 cents, I think, or maybe it's going even lower than that with these changes. Uh, I don't have the exact figure for the richest people in my head. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it's again, there's so many better options, so many ways this money could be spent to seriously address what is happening with the crisis in living costs. Yeah, 100%. It's like it's being praised as this kind of great political maneuver, snookering the, mm. the opposition and all that. But when you look at the actual kind of material impacts it's going to have, it, it's there's so many better things that could be done with that money, you're right. Um, I and guess, I would argue yeah. it would still snooker the opposition if yes. they did something really good that benefited a lot of people and they would also get it through the Senate regardless of the opposition's view because they would have support from the progressive members of the crossbench. Mm. Yeah, imagine doing something that actually helps the majority of people. <laughs> That'd be crazy. Yes, <laughs> yes that's right. Um, I just wanted to look back a little bit to wage, like wage rises. So there's kind of a history of governments trying to kind of suppress wages, keep them lower. And um, 
famously with the the accord in the 80s it was like no don't worry all the unions you need you can just relax with your wage demands we're going to actually increase the social wage um so i guess if if you could explain uh what that kind of idea of the social wage is and whether you know there even mm-hmm. is uh, any increases to the social wage in the recent kind of um recent times well i think that it was well it depends whether you consider this intentional or not but let's say that the accords were made in good faith with a genuine intent to increase the social wage mm. um it should have been quite easy to foresee that conservatives would just give it all away when they were in government And so what we've seen over the last few decades is a continual undermining of the small gains that were made at that time. And also it's important to remember that a lot of what we consider the remnants of the social wage at this point in time actually were implemented under the Whitlam government, not the Hawke and Keating governments, which is, you know, Mm. something I think that people might if they don't think about it, credit the accords with some of the things we have. So, for example, we're looking at things like HEX, um, the Medicare system, like obviously healthcare, um, education, even transport. These are things we could consider the social wage. And obviously what they're about is making universal access to things that people need so that you don't have to spend your income on it, which is how you get to the concept of a social wage. You may have lower wages, but you don't need to spend money on these things, so that's okay. Um, Once you start to chip away at those things and public education becomes more expensive at every age, um, hex debts start to balloon. universities become neoliberal institutions that are primarily focused on revenue raising rather than education. Um, Our healthcare system, uh, you know, the access for people with no money shrinks and shrinks and shrinks over time. Additional costs come with getting scans you need if you're in a health crisis. All these kinds of things have reduced the value of the social wage, Mm. increased our need for income to pay for it. But things like the social security payments, which also form part of the social wage, have at the same time been getting lower in terms of their actual purchasing power. So every bit of this thing that is supposed to be there to support employed people so that their wages don't need to grow as much is either, well, it's really not all of it's gone completely, but it's all been seriously eroded since the time when the accords were made. Yeah, 100%. Um, Just to move on to... uh kind of an uh, adjacent kind of topic that the Anti-Poverty Centre has been looking at um, is the Australian Electoral Commission's uh, annual donor returns report, which looks at Mm -hmm. uh, which companies have been making the donations to the major parties. Um, And particularly, you've been looking at the uh, employment services kind of industry or the the so-called job providers. Um, so could you give a bit of a rundown of what you found and what it kind of reveals about the, the poverty system, uh, in Australia? Yeah, we call them the unemployment providers <laughs> because that's, they tend to trap people in unemployment rather yeah. than genuinely help. Um, but yes, so we actually published a report last year called Punishment for Profit, which was looking at the entire ecosystem of compulsory activities, which are known as mutual obligations, and the providers who um, benefit from the privatisation of the system that is supposed to police 
mutual obligations, which, yes, is called employment services. Mm. Um, we, also, we honed in on a couple of key providers that expose kind of problems that exist throughout the system. And two of those are ones that people might be familiar with. One is Serena Russo. One is APM. APM is the largest uh, provider by a very long way. And over the course of, I think, from 2015 through to last year, they had donated about $700,000 to the two major political parties. Their contracts over that time were worth around $800 million. Mm. Um, they have also grown very, very quickly. So they entered the market in 2015 and as of uh, 2023, 2022, um, 2022, they became far and away the largest provider. Mm. Um, what we have, the, so in response to the problems with the new version, the new brand of employment services that was rolled out in 2022, which is called Workforce Australia, um, we joined the Unemployed Workers Union and other groups calling on the government um, to deal with the very catastrophic rollout of this new system by pausing payment suspensions so that no one was being financially punished or cut off their payment for problems with this system. Mm. The government declined to do that and, alter and as an alternative said, we will do an inquiry into this brand new system. It, throughout that inquiry, not only did they continue to penalise people and during the inquiry, there were more than 2 million um, payment suspension notices issued to mm. welfare recipients. It has just come out in the latest AEC data that APM, the biggest provider in the country, donated $150,000 to the Labor Party between the month that the inquiry started and June last year. Now, the inquiry didn't conclude until November, so it's going to be fascinating to see when we get the next round of filings in 2025, what additional um, money was funneled into the Labor Party by APM uh, between July 2023 and the and the report being handed down? So mm. it's really shameful. It's so transparent, and frankly, these people don't need to donate money to the Labor Party to get what they want. They already get what they want. Um, Employment Minister Tony Burke, um, when we met him for the first time after Labor was elected. Um, said to us that the reason um, they couldn't pause uh, payment suspensions was he was concerned about provider viability, which is extremely telling. It shows that he was very um, aware that people would stop engaging with these providers because they do not help them. And um, that was a concern that had been raised with him by the representative body for the employment services industry. So we have this really blatant um, attempts to influence and what we have talked about throughout the duration of that inquiry is that it, if it treated the providers who abuse people and profit from that abuse as credible witnesses the inquiry itself would have no credibility and I think mm. um, not only is that true but now we've seen that credibility even further undermined um, by these recent reports of the donations from APM. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's um, just like how you see, you know, the government's giving all all these subsidies to mining companies, and you look at the donors li list, and they're all sitting at the top there. Um, and you also <laughs> yes, just it's think, a bit of a habit. Yeah. <laughs> also, just think what all that money could do for the people who actually uh, us they're supposed to be helping, who are struggling mm -hmm. in, with poverty. So yeah, it's a, it's right. really I mean, good. 
Yeah, a lot of people say, oh, you know, if we get rid of, we just get rid of the system and we'll save um, $4 billion a year because that's how much it costs. Mm. But actually, there's so many people out there who do want useful help mm. <laughs> getting, you know, access to education, training, exploring career options, doing work experience and other things that might help them get a job in an area that they're interested in. Um, at the moment, we're spending $4 billion on a service that gets in the way. What we would love mm. to see is money being spent on services and ideally a public sector, high quality service that was voluntary that people could go to when they do want help. So it's... we obviously need all payments above the poverty line. And in addition, there should be a supportive, helpful service people can access. Um, <laughs> is there any uh, other last things you wanted to mention that we haven't discussed or any anywhere people should look for, to find what the Anti-Poverty Centre's uh, up to at the moment? Yeah, I think what we would love people to be thinking about and um, keeping front of mind over the coming month as we are building up to the federal budget circus, which comes around and slaps us in the face every year, is that the government is going to be able to distract from its failures for welfare recipients by creating, um, you know, continuing to push this narrative around how much the tax cuts help people. Mm. They're also... Uh, using this language of every Australian taxpayer is going to benefit from these cuts. Now, you know, not only are people on low wages hardly going to benefit at all, um, but every person on this continent who buys things is a taxpayer because we all pay GST, so mm. it's false. Yeah. Um, we would love people to continue to pressure, or if you haven't before, to, to begin to pressure your local politician to say, what are you doing for people who are least equipped to handle the cost increases? And as inflation trends down, we're going to hear excuses about the, you know, about the fact that the cost of living is now not getting worse as quickly as it was before. But there are two problems with that. One, it is still getting more expensive. It's just getting more expensive slightly less quickly. Mm. And also, we've already had the effect of these increases so everyone i know who relies on payments is finding things much we're under even more strain than we were a year ago or two years ago so we actually need to catch up for that um problem so please 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 where you can whether it's uh, phone calls emails social media continue to let your politicians know that this is very important we're also going to see before the federal budget a report published by the Economic Inclusion Advisory Committee, which we call the Economic Exclusion Committee because there are no <laughs> poor people on it. And I want everyone to remember that there is no consent from people in the welfare system for what that report puts out. Last year, it was an absolute farce and we will be pushing very hard when it is released to make sure that the public and politicians know that it's unacceptable and that the policy proposals in there do not reflect what we want and need. Awesome. Well, thanks for all the work that you and the Anti-Poverty Centre are doing and thanks for talking to me today. It's been really good. Yeah, thanks so much, Isaac. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Green Left podcast. If you like what you heard today, you can head to greenleft.org.au forward slash support and become a supporter to help us produce more content like this. Uh, also make sure to follow at Green Left Online on social media and uh, head to greenleft.org.au to read about the latest news and analysis about politics and social justice campaigns, including housing 
anti-poverty, climate and heaps more. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.